No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God. Allah. Bismillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Sultan Bayezid I ruled from 751 to 805 after Hijra, which corresponds to 1349 to 1402 CE. Sultan Bayezid was a very special individual and figure and he had to endure tremendous challenges during his reign. Not only did he have to face the Crusaders, but he also had to face the Mongols, the Tatar. And because he had to fight on two different fronts, the European front, the Asian front, and he had to travel very quickly between Anatolia and the Balkans, he was given the nickname Yildirim, which means thunderbolt, or in Arabic we would say maybe a sa'iqa. And he fought these two huge major forces and political players at that time, the Crusaders on the European side, and what we would consider the Islamicized Mongols or the Tatar in the East. So uh, we know that if you uh, remember the history of the Mongols, the, the Tatar, they ravaged much of the Muslim world and they decimated much of the Muslim world and they destroyed and they conquered. But many of them, because they didn't have a solid aqidah, they didn't have a solid foundation from their deen perspective, they adopted many of the religious ideas and philosophies of the places that they conquered. So originally they adopted many of the Christian ideas. So they adopted many Christian uh, ideologies. They married into uh, some Christians and uh, they had that idea. So it was almost like Christianized Tatar. And then you had those that adopted Islam or uh, they mingled with the Muslims and they adopted a lot of the Muslim ideas and they became almost the Islamicized uh, Tatar. And this was the force, the Islamicized Tatar, you could say, that Bayezid was facing in the east and in the west he was facing the Crusaders. The Crusaders came up with an international alliance uh, to confront the Ottoman state. So Sigismund of the king of Hungary and Pope Boniface IX made an urgent call to create a European alliance. And this alliance was compromised of France, of Germany, England, Scotland, Switzerland, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and many Italian territories. The Crusader army totaled almost 120,000. And in the year 1396 CE, which corresponds to 800 after Hijra, the uh, chiefs or the leaders, they sent this army. Now the uh, leader of Hungary, he disagreed, uh, or some of the chiefs of Hungary, they disagreed with Sigismund for, uh, for um, when they should attack. So there was a disagreement amongst them, amongst this crusader army, of um, when they should send this attack against the Ottomans. Uh, you know, Sigismund, he wanted the uh, to wait until the Ottomans attack. So he wanted to wait first, whereas they wanted some of his other chiefs and leaders, they actually wanted to attack before the Ottomans would to attack. And so they um, advanced to the river Danube until they reached Nicopolis, south of the Balkans, and they surrounded it. And uh, it seemed that the Ottomans were going to become overcome, that they would lose. And then all of a sudden, Bayezid appears with 100,000 well-equipped, well-trained soldiers to uh, to destroy and defeat the crusading uh, army. And many of their leaders were captured, many of their nobles were captured, many French noblemen were captured, for example. And afterwards, uh, Sultan Bayezid, he did accept the Fidya ransom for many of their leaders. And uh, many of the people who were captured, they included people like Count Denefri, uh, and you know he was a leader of his people. But 
he made a very interesting statement when he was released. He said, because you released me, I vow never to fight you again. So check this out. He's obviously being grateful. He's saying, I'm never going to fight you again. And Sultan Bayezid has a very special answer to this. This is an interesting answer I want us to pay attention to. He says, I allow you to break your vow. So here he's making, the count uh, is making a vow never to fight him again. But he's saying, I allow you to break your vow in case you want to return to fight against me as there is nothing more beloved to me than fighting all the crusaders in Europe and defeating them. So uh, he, he's showing absolute confidence like Bayezid, even though uh, he, he has rushed back to the European front, as I mentioned before, going back between like a thunderbolt, going back between the European and Asian side. He says, if you want to come back and break your vow, you can do that because there's no more pleasure. I don't get any more pleasure than defeating you. Bayezid is also one of the Ottoman leaders that set the stage for the conquest of Constantinople, present day Istanbul. He started to exert a high amount of pressure on the Byzantine emperor. And uh, after exerting a lot of pressure on the Byzantine emperor in Constantinople, he was able to get some concessions for the Muslim community. Now, remember, the Ottomans had such a strong presence of Islam within that area. So even though they had not officially captured, they did not capture, they did not conquer Istanbul at that time or Constantinople at that time, many people were becoming Muslim. Many people were still within the walls, within the walls of Constantinople, there were people who were Muslim. So he was able to uh, pressure the Byzantine emperor to have a Muslim judge, so uh, a person who would uh, be able to make judgments among, uh, for the Muslims in that area. And he was able to, uh, and by extension, of course, establish an Islamic court system uh, for the Muslims uh, to have a masjid built uh, and uh, actually to have 700 houses assigned for the Muslim community. So subhanAllah, even though there wasn't a liberation there, there was the seeds of Islam uh, was planted there. And uh, you could start hearing the Adhan. So imagine that even though that land is not conquered yet, or this area is not conquered, that you are starting to hear the Adhan because of the presence of Muslims within there. It's almost like setting the stage. That call of Adhan is almost calling not only people for Salah, Right, but eventually goodness is going to come into that land. They also were able to get uh, Sultan Bayezid was able to get the Byzantine emperor to surrender uh, half the borough of Galatin, where um, they were able to station about 60,000 Ottoman forces. And they were also able to get a tax, a regular tax that would be paid to the Ottoman state. Now, uh, soon afterwards, here Bayezid, he doesn't stop. He's a thunderbolt. He's continuing forward. Uh, he, there's a, a victory, there's a battle that takes place in Nicopolis. And what this does, this battle and this victory for the Ottomans, it establishes rule in the Balkans. And so they have rule over Bosnia and Bulgaria. Again, now look at the expansion here on the West, but it's very difficult to fight on, on two fronts. And Timur Link, who was leading the Mongols, uh, is starting to pressure from the East. So from the Asian side, there's a big pressure from Timur Link uh, to uh, take more territory and pressure the Ottoman state. Timur Link was uh, a, a king of Khorasan, which is based in Samarkand. And um, he was known to have this fearless and strong army. And he was able to actually control most, like much of the actually the Islamic world, the Muslim world. And his army spread in Asia. So you have it spreading from Delhi, Damascus, uh, the Ural Sea, the Arabian Gulf, uh, forests in areas of Iran, Persia, Armenia, 
uh, the high, the highlands, two rivers between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea areas of Russia. So Timur Link actually uh, was able to ha have these vast areas of land conquer vast areas of the Islamic world. And this is around the uh, time of 1369 CE. Now they were bound to uh, clash. So Bayezid and Timur Link are bound to face off. And Bayezid is obviously, his resources are split between these two fronts and his focus is split between these two fronts. And uh, whereas Timur Link has to just focus on one, he doesn't have to worry about Crusaders and the Crusaders don't have to worry about the Mongols. And oftentimes they would be pleased with one another. The Crusaders and the Tatar would be pleased with one another because they had a common focus of their military efforts because it's not like they're facing each other now. It's like they're trying to close in within this, um, this Muslim rule. Uh, and there are several reasons why uh, Bayezid uh, and Timur Link had to face off. One is that many of the Muslims who had lost their country and territories from Iraq, they joined uh, Bayezid and they sought help from Bayezid. And uh, the similarly, the uh, uh, many of the people who were conquered in the area of Asia Minor, they sought help. So the, these are uh, people who have the Tatar heritage and are linked to the Tatar. They sought help from Timur Link. So you have two people from uh, conquered lands going to essentially, uh, you know, the, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. And they're going to these uh, opposite leaders uh, to seek help, you know, to maybe perhaps regain their land or get revenge. The Christians, uh, they were urging Timur Link to attack and destroy Bayezid. So as I mentioned, there was this pseudo alliance between the Christians and the Tatar, and there was also some heated and exchange uh, heated exchanges between Timur Link and and Bayezid. Uh, they had these letters that they exchanged amongst themselves that uh, really caused a lot of uh, you know tension to build up between the two. Now uh, Bayezid met uh, near Ankara Timur Link, who came with a huge army. So Bayezid came with an, a great army himself, 120,000 soldiers, but Timur Link came with an even greater army. And in Ankara in the year 804 after Hijar, which is corresponds to about 1402 uh, CE, they uh, clashed in uh, what would be a very uh, defining battle for the Ottoman Empire because the Mongols, they won. They actually defeated them very badly uh, to the extent where they actually captured uh, Sultan Bayezid. And he remained detained until his death the following year. Now, why did he, uh, why was he defeated in such a great manner? Well, firstly, uh, the rashness of how Bayezid had to operate or how he had to act. It was not a suitable uh, place to camp where he went. And so uh, many of the soldiers died due to thirst uh, because it was the summertime and there was drought conditions and they were greatly vastly outnumbered. So you're talking about 120,000 soldiers versus 800,000. Okay, so an army of 120,000 versus uh, an army of 800,000. So they're vastly outnumbered. And what also happened, which really undermined uh, the army of Bayezid is that many of the former Tatar soldiers, uh, many of the people who had uh, allegiances or background or history with the Mongols, they defected to the Mongols and they almost act like a fifth column against the Ottoman Empire. Now, uh, when the uh, European countries heard of this defeat in the West, they were so pleased. Uh, they couldn't have been more elated. And um, the King of England and France and Spain and the Byzantine Emperor of Constantinople all congratulated Timur Link. And so this is something to keep in mind is that when uh, the enemies of Muslims are elated with what you do, then 
whose side are you really on? Like if the enemies of people who are uh, trying to harm and conquer the Muslim lands are elated with what you do, then perhaps, uh, you know, you need to reevaluate uh, what side of the fence you are on. And so after the defeat of Timur, uh, uh, of that when uh, Bayezid, uh, Timur Link, he was able to seize areas as Aznik and um, uh, Brusa. And also these were uh, actually under the control of uh, Muslims of the Ottomans. So he was able to con uh, control and seize more territory. But in addition to that, what he did was he took over the area of Izmir, which was actually uh, controlled by the Knights uh, Roads of St. John. And this was actually controlled by Christians. And he did this for political reasons because he wanted to justify his position before Muslims. So he wanted to do something in front of uh, the greater community of Muslims to uh, get a better um, uh, get a better view of himself in the court of public opinion. And after this great defeat, so what was uh, more, I would say, devastating to the Ottoman Empire than this defeat with Timur Lenk was what occurred afterwards. What occurred afterwards? So they, they, they are defeated on a battlefield, a great defeat. But there is something that's even worse than being defeated by an external enemy, and that is defeating within yourself being defeated, losing heart, losing the unity within yourselves. And what happened for the next 10 years was uh, a moment in history which almost completely ended Dawlat al-Uthmaniyah. It almost completely caused the Ottoman Empire to come to an end. And that was a period of an entire decade of civil war within the Ottoman Empire. So between the year of 806 to 816 after Hijri, uh, which corresponds to 1403 to 1413 CE, uh, the five sons of uh, Bayezid, he had five sons. And one of them, uh, Mustafa, was killed during the battle against Timur Link. Musa was captured. Uh, and then uh, you had uh, Suleiman, Isa, and, and Muhammad. And so Suleiman, uh, he was, uh, he took control over Adirne, Isa took a, over a, a Brusa, and they started fighting with each other. They were locked in a civil war. And Timur Link saw this. He saw the sons of Bayezid fighting amongst each other. And what, what did he do in response to this? So obviously, uh, you know, he's intelligent. He releases Musa, one of the sons. Why? Because he wants to add more fitna amongst them. He wants to cause more division amongst them. So even though he was captured and they could have kept kept him in prison, he released it so he could cause more fitna amongst them because there was this lack of unity. The sons of Bayezid were fighting uh, with each other over territory. Allah SWT, he tells us in uh, Surah Al-Ankabut, do people think that they will be left alone because they say, we believe? No, and will not be, and that they will not be tested. No, they will not do. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will indeed test them, those who were before them, as He tested those before them. So Subhanallah, this was a big, big test. This was a big test. This was a big fitna for the Ottoman Empire. Here they were defeated. This crushing blow. Uh, this magnanimous, like this great personality, Sultan Bayezid gets captured, he dies a year later in captivity. And then you have the sons of this great Sultan fighting amongst each other uh, for pieces of this Ottoman Empire, which is being taken over externally and now it's fracturing internally. So there's these fractures internally and externally, it's very vulnerable. Then, uh, out of almost the brink of destruction comes the savior of the Ottoman Empire. And some actually call him the second founder of Dawlat al-Uthmaniyya. Okay, so remember uh, they call Uthman, right? Uh, the founder, that's what it, the Ottoman Empire is named after. But uh, they call this Sultan 
Muhammad Jalabi, uh, Sultan Muhammad I, one of the sons of Bayezid, the second founder of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he uh, was born in the year 781 after Hijri, which corresponded to 1379 CE. Uh, he was a very strong personality, both physically and through his character. Uh, he was active. He was known to be a wrestler. He partook himself in uh, 24 battles. And he had so many injuries. Some of the narrations say that he had 40 wounds that he had sustained through the course of his battles. He was the one that was able to end the civil war. So a civil war nearly took down the Ottoman Empire because externally, think about it. They were so strong. They were so strong. It like even though they had this defeat from Timur Lenk and they were taking on the Crusaders, they still had a very vibrant empire and a very strong empire. And they were still they weren't erased. Uh, they, you know, you're you're talking about them expanding European front, Asian front, uh, two formidable enemies, and they're yet they're able to take them both. Uh, both of these enemies on, it was the civil war that they had that almost completely destroyed them. This internal turmoil that completely destroyed them, you know. So uh, before um, you thought that um, the greatest enemy for the Avengers was, were themselves, okay, they had that civil war, okay, and it's not even a real <laughs> you know, story. The the civil war that goes to show you that's a good actually illustration to show you if you're if you're strong and you're formidable and you're resilient against all these external enemies it's your own selves that can be your greatest threat so he was able to end the civil war amongst uh his brothers uh, he was known to be somebody who was very generous uh, he was somebody who paid homage to the Abbasid uh, Khalifa at that time. He sent gifts to the Emir of Mecca to be distributed amongst the poor in Mecca. And uh, he started to invest in rebuilding the state and to reestablish the infrastructure. Uh, what he did was uh, on many fronts, the way that he, he was very strategic. So here you have uh, consolidating power amongst his own family. He's developing peace treaties. So he had a peace treaty with the Byzantine emperor and he tried to get him to become an ally. And he gave up, in order to do that, he had to give up some cities along the Black Sea. He made peace with Venice. Uh, he subdued revolutions within uh, his own empire in Europe and Asia. He uh, reclaimed actually some of the territories that was lost to Timor Lenk. Now, how were they able to bounce back? How was the Ottoman Empire able to bounce back? That's something that should be studied and that should be reflected upon. And it would be, I think, a good lesson for leaders in the Muslim community to really reflect upon some of the key aspects of how this community or this empire, which was ravaged externally, started to fracture internally with divisions uh, to the point where their brother is literally fighting and killing brother. How were they able to bounce back from this brink of destruction? Well, the scholars, when they study this and they look at why were they able to do that? Why were they so resilient? They look at it from uh, the perspective or they are able to identify that the institutions and the system that the Ottomans had established. So remember during the time of Orhan, uh, he established the institution. So Uthman came, he came up with the uh, constitution, the values, the core values, the ide like the ideology of how of how this empire should be built. Okay, then uh, Orhan took it to the next level by making institutions that are reflective of that. And these institutions, they are producing. Uh, military men, they're producing thinkers, they're producing educators, uh, they're producing politicians. Th this is what this education system is doing, it's producing these people so it's not relegated uh, by a single individual, like it's not dependent. The whole dependency of the empire is not on a single human being or a personality, okay? The, the ideals, the core values of 
this society is actually upheld and supported by institutions and uh, the infrastructure that houses these institutions. Okay. So this was one of the key reasons why the Ottoman Empire was able to bounce back so quickly. So even though they had this brief internal turmoil and civil war and they uh, had this chaos occurring, what gave them that ability to bounce back is the fact that they had invested so much in these institutions. It wasn't a single person. So just because they lost Bayezid doesn't mean now that the whole empire is going to collapse. Just because uh, they have now this family fighting amongst each other. Eventually, of course, that was a key element for them to be able to become unified and to overcome the civil war is that Muhammad Jalabi had, Sultan Muhammad Jalabi had to step up and uh, unite uh, there by force, uh, you know, the armies and so forth. But the what the armies, the people, the scholars, the uh, the military, the fact that they had these institutions that they could rely upon that would keep people ideologically united, it was very important. That was the key element is that when you have a unified purpose, you can always renew your intention. You can always renew the existential purpose of the Ottoman Empire because that's like been ingrained in your whole education system. So for example, if our education system was based on the fact that we're learning science, math, physics, uh, anything and, and religious sciences, because we're doing all of these things to um, serve to worship Allah SWT, no matter, no matter what happens, you go back to those roots. So you can go through chaos, you can go and you can remember why was I doing this thing in the first place and you can go back to those roots and it's easier to unite with people who have uh, a core belief in those types of ideas. Now, uh, one of the fitna that uh, Sultan uh, Muhammad had to face was the uh, fitna of Sheikh Badruddin. Now, this was uh, a person uh, who uh, around the uh, years of 1359 to 1420, he exerted a lot of uh, influence and he was actually a Qadi, he was a judge in the army of uh, Sultan Muhammad's brother Musa. And he started this corrupt uh, movement where he started to distort parts of the deen. So essentially, he's uh, a, 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 somebody who started off as a sheikh, uh, someone who had given that position as a Qadi, but he starts his own corrupted movement, okay? And he came up with uh, different uh, ideas of how he wanted to modify Islam. Uh, he wanted to make it an equal inheritance between men and women. Uh, he wanted to say that there's no differences in uh, any of the religions, so there's no differences between Muslims and non-Muslims. And when somebody says that, that actually that's actually is intolerance because what they're saying is that I'm coming up with my own religion now that you have to follow. Oftentimes people can conflate saying that, hey, when you say, hey, we're all the same, uh, you know, your religion is the same as my religion. No, we can respect one another and we can have uh, a cordial relationship with one another and we can be just with one another and we can have very different ideas of what our purpose in life is. We can have completely different ideas about Dean. That's fine. You know, when people say we're all the same, what you're actually saying is that I'm coming up with a new religion that I want everybody to follow. Whereas saying that I'm different and you're different, but uh, let's just respect each other's differences and that's okay if we're different. It's okay. It's okay to be have a completely different idea about akhira. It's it's you know you can you can have a different idea. I may not believe that's the truth. You may not believe I follow the truth, but tolerance doesn't mean uniformity. Okay, we can sometimes conflate unity and unity. You can have a unified society that has different belief systems, right? Uh, but you don't have to have it uh, uniform. We're the same. We have to believe the same. So that's just on a size of caveat because a lot of times these types of ideas, they do come up under the guise of a person trying to 
you know, say that they're so tolerant and that, you, you know, this is how we're going to bring peace and how we're going to avoid conflict and, hey, man, let's just all get along. We're all the same. Everything's the same. No, what you're saying is, hey, man, I got this new religion and you got to follow this or else you're intolerant, man. That's that's basically what people are saying, you know, when they're saying, hey, we're all the same. OK, no, it's OK to be different. OK, but here he begins this movement saying that there's there, there's no differences. Uh, he was supported by people like Bir uh, Khalija, Mustafa, and Tor Kamal. They um, had an aim to take over the Ottoman Empire. And because of the recent turmoil that the empire endured, they thought this was their chance. And he stated that uh, I will revolt until I take control of the world with my beliefs. I will divide the world among my followers with the power of knowledge and the secret of monotheism. I will cancel the laws of the people of traditions and their movement, and I will make some prohib prohibitions lawful. You know, subhanAllah, these words uh, by Sheikh Badruddin, this corrupted, quote-unquote, Sheikh, uh, this encapsulates what I just said, that they're not trying – it, it sounds sometimes very nice to say that there's no difference between religion but what he's saying if you look at his words he's saying actually this is my attempt to get power by saying hey we're all the same so who should i follow well you know what man i got some great writings that you can follow you know and then they just play dries i'll take some stuff from you know muhammad sallam and i'll take some stuff for the christians and i'll take some mongolian sayings and i'll mix them up and but everyone's just gonna follow me because i'm the i'm the new guy in charge you know, I, I'm the head chief in charge now. That's sometimes, you know, so we, people get deluded. At the end of the day, people get deluded uh, when, uh, you know, um, when when people come up uh, sometimes with these seemingly nice and tolerant ideas and sayings and so forth. Okay. Similarly with, um, you know, some of the modern secular uh, leaders that came afterwards that really uh, repressed Muslims. So they'll repress anything like traditional, like anything traditional religion, Islam, Christianity. They'll repress that. So instead of like, you know, the Islamic approach is very different. So, uh, for example, if we look at how the Khulafa Rashidun and we looked at the, the Muslim leaders who were actually trying to follow the fiqh of Islam, the understanding, the jurisprudence, the laws of Islam, when you look at their approach, it's very different because, hey, there are some overarching laws that if, if it's under Muslim rule, uh, overarching laws that everybody needs to follow. But guess what? Okay, you're, you, you, you identify yourself as Christian. You can actually have some laws from Christianity that you can use to judge yourselves. Okay, your Jewish community, you can have some laws from the Jewish community to judge yourself. And we're different. And guess what? Some of the laws that you uh, will give permission to do because you ascribe to this religion um, will be different. It will be maybe considered haram for me, but we're going to still allow you to do it. See, that's tolerance. That's tolerance. That allows a community to exist with their identity. To say that we have to be uniform, you're actually saying we have to erase uh, everybody's identity and you're trying to create a new identity for people. And oftentimes, and I've seen this by um, people who uh, appear, they try to appear to be very tolerant and very humanistic, they actually don't respect people's identity. They don't actually uh, uh, respect people's values. They actually tried to call, uh, you know, you know, everyone, you need to have it uh, inclusive and uniform based upon our value system. And, and and there's no regard whatsoever for that particular community's identity, for their values uh, and, and whatnot. Now, this uh, this corrupt uh, Badruddin, he was supported by the Amir in uh, Aflaq, which is in Romania, and he was supported both financially and militarily. So, again, an internal dispute funded and supported uh, from external sources. Uh, Sultan Muhammad Jalabi, uh, he uh, was able to identify this threat within his empire. He was able to repel 
Badruddin to Dali Orman, which is present-day Bulgaria. And uh, what happened, even though he was able to repel him, what started to occur was that Badruddin started getting more and more support from European sources. And his followers actually reached uh, seven to 8,000 members. So it became such a threat and it became uh, such a disturbance within the empire. Sheikh Muhammad Jalabi or Sultan Muhammad Jalabi, he took it upon himself to personally lead an army uh, to defeat him at Dali Orman. And he made a base from Caesar Greece uh, to attack him from. And Badruddin, he tried to escape, but uh, the Sultan had secret uh, members or spies that were able to infiltrate the army and the membership of Badruddin, and they were able to find his location and capture him. Sultan, uh, he faced Badruddin, so Badruddin was brought to uh, uh, Sultan Muhammad, and he was able to face him, and he asked him, why is your face pale? And Badruddin said, the sun old leader becomes yellow when sunset approaches so he knew that uh, his end of his time was near and uh, what happened afterwards is that they engaged in debate they had the scholars of the ottoman state engage in this open uh, scientific or this uh, this um, debate islamic jurisprudence debate uh, in the legal court and they uh, were able to disprove a lot of the things that he was doing and able to expose a lot of his fitna and so he was uh, sentenced to death. Uh, now uh, Sultan Muhammad, uh, he would himself uh, die in the year 824 after Hijra which corresponds to 1421 CE in, <coughs> excuse me, in the city of Adirna at the age of 43. And he nominated his son, Sultan Murad II, to be his successor. Now, Sultan Murad II, when he took over, he was 18 years old. 18 years old. One thing I find amazing of many of the sultans uh, of the Ottoman Empire, and which we, I think we need to take a minute to pause to note. We need to, we need to take a minute. Let's, let's pause. Put the brakes on for a second let's take a pause because i think this is another really important thing check this out how many of these sultans were so young when they took over and how many of them uh were uh fighting uh, at a young age uh, on the battlefield and making like these huge decisions that had a tremendous effect on their empire. Like we're talking about political decisions, we're talking about peace treaties, we're talking about military decisions, all of these things. How are they able to be so well equipped? Again, we gotta go back to it, the Tarbiya, the educational institution. It wasn't just one personality that uh, came out of this chaotic conditions. And that's what sometimes we hope for, right? That a hero is gonna come out of nowhere. We have such chaos turmoil, trials and tribulations, a hero will just come out uh, produced uh, by divine intervention. We need the help of Allah SWT in all things. Let's be clear. But Allah SWT has given us faculties, blessings, and the benefit of history to see how we can become successful. What we see is that from a young age, the society at large, and specifically the sultans, were given tarbiya. They were able to benefit from these institutions, which truly reflected the uh, noble ideas that this whole Ottoman Empire was created upon. Are we doing the same thing? We got to ask ourselves this question, a self-reflective question. Muslim community, we have Islamic schools. We have masajids, we have madrasas, we have in the Muslim world universities. Are we creating leaders, resilient leaders with the skills, with the tools to lead our communities? And do we embrace them and do we give them responsibility at a young age? 
do we test them with responsibility at the young age? Do we give them a chance to make mistakes and are compassionate with their mistakes and say, you know what, come, it's fine. And and have confidence in the efforts that we've made. It's like, you know, you, you I've seen so many times that you put all these efforts and all these young, bright brothers and sisters coming out of these schools, yet you have zero confidence in them when they come out. Like you, you're not willing to give them responsibility, leadership roles within your community to help uplift your community. Perhaps maybe there is not as much confidence in the institutions that you established. That's why maybe you don't have confidence in what is being produced. Maybe it's a self-reflective question that we need to reevaluate what we have accomplished with these institutions. And does it mean that we throw everything out? No, it means that we just make it better. We have to value, we have to ask ourselves these hard questions. To say I won't ask myself these hard questions is ignorance, is trying to stay deaf, dumb and blind. To ask yourself shows growth, the ability to move your ego aside, to suppress your ego and to be able to face uh, mistakes and challenges and shortcomings and to address those. Because if you address those sincerely, then you have more confidence in what is produced from your efforts. Many of these sultans, subhanAllah, look at this. They start, they, they take the leadership role at a young age, like a teenager. They take a lead and they die very young. Many of them uh, die in their 40s. Many of these sultans, think about it. They're dying in their 40s. They take rulership at a young age. How much time do you have for development? That means the development process must have been as soon as they're able to walk and learn, they're, they're going through a process of tarbiyah. The environment around them is consistent with their institutions. Their family is consistent with the institutions. It's consistent with the community. And so they grow up in this highly supportive environment which has a, uh, ha has a strong purpose and strong core values. And so they, when they reach the age of 17, 18, 16, 14, they have the ability now to take over, to lead, to blaze a new trail. And for the few decades that they work, they're able to accomplish more than people would accomplish in many lifetimes. It's something to think about. It's something to reflect about. Sultan Murad II takes over at the age of 18. He was known for his piety. He was known for his justice. He was known for his compassion. He stopped many of the rebellious movements conducted by his uncle Mustafa. Uh, he, uh, who was actually supported by the Byzantine Emperor Emmanuel. Uh, and he laid siege to the city of uh, Gallipoli uh, to, uh, or uh, he, he was laid siege upon uh, at the city of Gallipoli to, to uh, their attempt to try to remove him. And uh, Sultan uh, Murad II Athani, uh, he was able to capture uh, uh, his, his uncle, and uh, it was he was sentenced to death. Uh, there was many conspiracies that the emperor did against uh, Sultan Murad uh, when he was, you know, uh, and he sponsored his uh, brother, uh, he which he appointed as the head of an army, and he attacked, and they seized uh, Nikia and Anatolia. Uh, but eventually, Sultan Murad was able to defeat him, and he was able to. Uh, attack uh, Saronika in the year 833 after Hijra, uh, 1431 CE, and he was able to take over uh, lands there. He reestablished rule in the Balkans. Uh, he was able to take over part of the province of Wallachia, Romania, and he was able to subjugate the Serbian king. He reinforced rule in Greece. Uh, he was able to liberate Albania in 834 after Hijra. Hungary in 842 after Hijra, uh, which both of them their correspond to 1431 CE and 1438 CE. Uh, he was unable to liberate Belgrade, which is the capital of Serbia, 
and uh, he was he faced this new crusader alliance that was created uh, in the year uh, 846 after Hydra, which is 1442 CE. Uh, and uh, this was uh, a alliance that came from, again, from Europe, approved by the Pope. It included Hungary, Poland, Serbia, Genoa, Venice, uh, the Byzantian uh, Empire, and uh, parts of Italy. Uh, it had Czech, uh, German armies. Uh, there was uh, a Hungarian uh, army as well. Commander John uh, Hanyadi, who was also part of it. Uh, they were able to uh, repel this Crusader army in 848 after Hidruf, which is 1444 CE. Uh, the Ottomans uh, forced them to have a peace treaty for 10 years. So this was a peace treaty that... Um, was supposed to last for for ten years. Uh, they had uh, Serbia had surrendered, and um, they surrendered the province of Al Aflaq, which uh, which is in Hungary. And uh, the Crusaders also agreed to pay a ransom of sixty, or actually, um, they agreed to accept a ransom of sixty thousand ducat for the release of uh, his son-in-law, so Mahmoud uh, Shalabi. So Sultan Murad's uh, son-in-law was uh, captured, so they were able to uh, have him released. And uh, his son-in-law was actually one of the generals of, uh, general commanders of the Ottoman Empire, or Ottoman uh, Army. They uh, drafted this treaty in uh, uh, Ottoman Turkish and Hungarian, and both leaders swore by their holy books to honor this treaty. It was supposed to be, uh, it was some major battles that took place, uh, major territories that, you know, exchanged hands. Uh, this was supposed to bring a lot of peace and stability in, in, in that area, and they both swore to that. Sultan Murad II, after this peace treaty was established, he returned to Anatolia. And uh, soon after he returned, his son Ala died. And this actually affected him a lot. So personally, that affected him. And he desired actually to worship Allah in seclusion. So he had a desire to leave war and politics, you know, leave the, you know, the troubles and the burden of governance and just go and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in seclusion, just become ibadullah. Uh, and what he does what he does is he puts his son uh, Muhammad in charge at the age of fourteen. So he makes him in charge now of the um, uh, Ottoman Empire. And he travels to uh, Magnesia, which is in Asia Minor, to go in seclusion and worship Allah SWT. Now, he could not do this for very long because word got out that he had uh, transferred rulership to, you know, such a young, uh, you know, son, 14 years old. Uh, so uh, the Cardinal Cesarani, uh, Cesarini, he, uh, he calls for an abrogation of this peace treaty. Okay, so him, many of his aides, they say, let's dissolve this peace treaty because he wanted to take advantage of the absence of Sultan um, uh, the uh, Murad II. So he wanted to take advantage of that. And he wanted to take advantage of the fact that this new Sultan, Sultan Muhammad Afani, this, uh, to, uh, that he's so young, 14 years old, so take advantage that he's in this position. So Pope Eugene the Fourth approved of breaking the treaty, uh, and as a result, they laid siege to the Bulgarian city of Varna, which was on the coast of the Black Sea, and this was actually the fifth crusade against the Ottoman Empire. So think about this: this is the the fifth time, and when we talk about a crusade, we're talking about something that is approved by the Pope, that usually uh, includes an alliance of both the Western and Eastern uh, Christian empires. So the Byzantine Empire uh, and, you know, so you have like the Orthodox 
uh, Orthodox Christians in the East, and you have the Catholics in the West usually uh, getting together, uh, many countries sending armies, leaders together in a coalition uh, for a crusade. So this was the fifth time, the fifth time that this occurred. Uh, again, uh, breaking a treaty, uh, creating this, you know, you thought for a moment there, he maybe had thought, Sultan Murad thought, okay, I have at least 10 years for peace. You know, my son can grow into the role. You know, I can I can take it easy. I can just worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But uh, they broke their treaty. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah the Tawbah 10, uh, with regard to a believer, they, the disbelievers, respect not the ties either of kinship or of covenant. It is they who have transgressed uh, all bounds. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already tells us in the Quran to uh, expect and be prepared for things like that. Uh, so there was a call for Sultan Murad to uh, return. He refused. He didn't want to leave Ibadah. He didn't. He would. He didn't want to leave worshiping Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So there was this Sultanate Shura Council in Adirne, and they addressed um, uh, his son, Sultan Muhammad. He says, "We are unable to repel the advance of the enemy." Unless your father assumes the sultanate in your place, send your father to confront the enemy and you take rest. Then the sultanate may be returned to you when this important matter is resolved. So this council is advising this young sultan Muhammad, got to tell your father to come back. We need your, <laughs> you're, you're cool, but we, we need your dad. Okay, we need the big guns. Uh, for this one to repel this crusade. And once he comes back uh, and he does that, then you, you can go, you know, you, you can go back to being uh, the Sultan. So Sultan Muhammad, uh, think about this man, just like this young teenager uh, starts begging his father to return. And uh, he sends him a, a very cool letter. He says to him, if I am the Badsha, then I order you to take command of your army. And if you are he, then come and defend your country. SubhanAllah. So the way he articulates himself, it shows his training. It shows like this is, you know, even though he's being belittled by these European leaders, 14-year-old, oh, cool, we're going to take over now. We're going to take advantage of the situation. Look at how he talks to his father, subhanAllah, like to try to convince him. All these senior leaders can't convince his father to come. So it's up to him now. Like the council is coming to him like, we need your dad. We need your father to step up. So he says, okay, writes them. If I'm your badsha, if I'm your leader, if I'm the sultan, then I order you to command of your army. Then you got to follow my orders. But if you're the sultan... Well, you got to take command of your army and defend your country. So subhanAllah, the, the way he words it, it's like he doesn't have a choice. He does. So Sultan Murad was convinced. He left his retreat and he led an army against this threat. Uh, he reached Adirne the same day as this uh, crusader army reaches. Uh, and in the second day when they're facing this crusader army, what they did is actually they took the treaty that they had signed and they put it on their lances. So the Ottoman uh, army is taking this this treaty that the Crusaders, that the Christians had broken, and they're holding it up on their lances uh, above themselves, and they're carrying it. And so they were doing this so that the heavens and earth could be witnesses of the treason and aggression of the enemy that these Crusaders had done. And this actually instilled more zeal and courage in the Ottoman soldiers. Now these two uh, groups fought intensely. It was an intense fight. Uh, the uh, Hungarian king, uh, who actually one of the main violators of this treaty, uh, Ladislas, uh, he actually met Sultan Murad on the battlefield. They faced each other face to face. And Sultan Murad was actually able to kill him 
with a blow from his lance. So with his lance, he was uh, they were both met on horseback, and Sultan Murad had a lance, and he was able to uh, defeat him uh, and strike him and kill him with his uh, lance. And then uh, the other uh, members of the army they came in and um, uh, they 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 killed. Uh, they finished the job, and then they raised this body of the king. And uh, this actually was a very demoralizing thing for uh, the crusading army. Then Sultan Murad, he returned back to his private, private seclusion in Magnesia. Uh, but then what ended up happening when he went is that in Adirne, many of the viziers, so many of the advisors and an Inkashari group, so remember this was the specialized Janissary forces, they started to cause a rebellion and discord. Uh, and they tried to again take advantage that Sultan Muhammad II, who was still relatively young, he was 19 at this time, uh, they were hoping to uh, capture uh, power. And then again, Sultan Murad had to return and uh, the Inkashari group, they submitted uh, to him, uh, to his authority. And uh, he appointed for a brief period of time uh, his son, Muhammad II, as the Emir of Magnesia and Anatolia until his death. So Sultan Murad actually, although he wanted to be in seclusion, although he wanted to just worship Allah SWT when it was required for him, when duty called, essentially, he was there and he served on the throne until the last days of his life and he continued with uh, conquest and liberation and guess what? He died in a journey at the age of 47. And, uh, you know, he's buried in uh, Muradiyah Mosque in Bursa. Uh, he, he was buried on a Jum'ah. And he built, he left a legacy as well uh, of building many uh, institutions, uh, many things that actually enriched Ottoman society, masajid, schools, palaces, and bridges during his rule. And then now again, Sultan Muhammad II comes to take over rulership. So imagine he he took over rulership three times. This was the third time. Sultan Muhammad II took over first at the age of 14. He was propped up into this position. And one would say like, man, like he can't catch a break. You know, there's this a whole crusade is launched. A whole crusade is launched because they think they could take advantage of that. And then he he comes again, age of 19, and there's this internal turmoil. Okay, we can take over internally. Okay, young guy, we can take advantage of the situation. His father comes again to support him. Third time now, he takes over. Are they going to be able to mess with him? Are crusaders going to be able to mess with Sultan Muhammad II? Are people going to be able to take advantage of Sultan Muhammad II? They, they tried twice. No. Because this time, Sultan Muhammad II is going to take it to them. Sultan Muhammad II, Sultan Muhammad al-Thani was none other than Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih, the liberator of Constantinople. The one would turn Constantinople to Istanbul. That was Sultan Muhammad. This is think about what he went through. And to get somebody like that, think about the investment you make. You know, this is time of self-reflection. Don't just take it as an inspirational story. Take take some pragmatic lessons. Sometimes people need support. Not everybody hits the home run their first time at bat they make mistakes they falter they get challenged but his father came back twice to support him to be there for him to have his back do we have the backs of our young generation do we have the backs of those who have potential in our society do, like do we even have each other's backs at all because if we do, I guarantee you that there's these 
people with talent and drive and ambition and capability within their ummah, they just need the support. They just need the support. Because Sultan Muhammad al-Fati, when he came now to power, you're going to see a completely elevation. This The culmination of efforts for hundreds and hundreds of years during the time of the Sahaba till his time, you would see the culmination of that effort manifest in the opening of Constantinople. Now, if you want to know the story of Sultan Muhammad al-Fati and how Hagia Sophia became a masjid, go back to the podcast where we talk about how Hagia Sophia became a masjid. And then you'll see the amazing story of how Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih was able to conquer a land that was deemed unconquerable. We ask Allah to keep us humble and keep us hungry. Remember, as always, we want to live by the haq, die by the haq. And just when you think life is stuck, tune in to life haq. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.